we will be deviating from our normal study in the Word of God at the book of Acts where we have been over the past several weeks. We're going to be looking today at several passages of Scripture. I hope that you can follow along with me as we do that. Uh, Our intention is to reflect on this particular day that we are now here for, the birth of our Savior. And so much of what we're saying this morning has to do with what we will be looking at this morning. Um, And so I guess I can look at this as being a reinforcement of what the Lord put on my heart to share. So don't forget the songs that we sang, the prayers that were prayed, and now the study of God's Word together. Would you pray with me for this? I pray, Lord God, that you would anoint, that you would bless, that you would give each one ears to hear that which you desire to speak to your people today. I pray, Father, that you would bless us with your presence, fill us with your spirit, guide us in all your truth. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Would you turn with me to Philippians this morning, chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Philippians is right after Ephesians. Ephesians is right after Galatians. First and second Corinthians It's in the middle of the New Testament. You should be able to find it fairly quickly and easily. And in this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, there is one of the most profound statements in the entire Bible that encompasses the totality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we're going to look at that this morning, beginning with chapter 2 in the book of Philippians, verse 5, where Paul the Apostle tells the Philippian church and us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul reminds the Philippian church and again us as we read these words that we are to have the mind of Christ. And there are many books written, many thoughts presented on what it actually means to have the mind of Christ. We could go there this morning with that thought alone and spend perhaps not just one sermon, but several on that one topic. As is the case with almost every verse and phrase even in this passage that we've read, there is so much here that it is unfortunate that we're only going to be spending a short time together in the study of this word. I'm reminded that the Apostle John had once said, wrote in John, his gospel, in chapter 21, that he supposed that the things that Jesus did while he was on this earth, even if 
The books could be written. There wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain those words. And so I feel kind of limited in the short amount of time that we have to discuss these things because it's so profound, it's so amazing, so far beyond our ability to comprehend and to discuss for any short period of time such as this. But that we will do to give a glimpse, if you would, of the meaning behind these words of the great Apostle Paul. Take note of fact in the fact that he had said that Jesus came He had to come as a man. He had to do what he did. As so eloquently was spoken in the songs that we sang, he was born for that purpose. It tells us in verse 6 that he was in the form of God. Now that is an interesting thought as well. I'll just briefly talk about that as, as we move forward. God is spirit. And so the word form can't really apply to a physical form, as we all have, in terms of shape or size, but it has more to do with the character of God, the attributes of God, the image of the Almighty God. Not in terms, again, of shape and size, but in terms of who He is. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's a statement of deity. Make no mistake, if you have no understanding of the character, the power, the glory, the presence of an almighty God as presented to us through His Son, then you're here to listen, I hope, to this statement Jesus Christ is God. He is the second person of a triune God. One God, but expressing Himself in many ways, three distinct ways, given to us in His Word, as a Father, as a Son, and as the Holy Spirit. All three representing His deity. And so Jesus saw that it was not robbery for him to consider himself to be equal with God because he was equal with God. In John's Gospel again, read chapter 17. It's the Lord's prayer to his Father. And in that prayer, he asked the Father, Restore to me the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Again, expressing deity. Because God, in His Word, has said over and over again, I am the Lord your God, I will share my glory with none other. So it's very clear that Jesus, unless He was some kind of a lunatic, was identifying Himself as equal with the Father and sharing the glory of God with the Father at one time. But He no longer was in that human form able to completely say that. And so that's why in verse 7, Paul tells us this very strange statement. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. The Greek word there is kenosis, and it means an emptying. 
So, in a sense, Jesus emptied himself of his glory. And that's about as good as we can get it. We don't know the final, the full extent of what Jesus had to remove himself from or empty himself of. But we do know that the Word of God tells us that he did that so that he could become like one of us. A human being born to a woman. That was God's plan. It wasn't devised after Adam had sinned, by the way. He had already determined these things must be done long before even Adam and Eve were created. From the very beginning of time, God's plan was already in motion. And it included this one truth. The Son of God would become a human being like unto us. The implication is not completely like us. And the reason that stated that way is because he wasn't completely like us. Be mindful of the fact that, yes, he was completely human in every sense of the word with one distinct difference. He was without sin. No human on the face of the earth for all of time could ever possibly say that with the perhaps one exception, Adam and Eve, when they were first in the Garden of Eden. They hadn't yet sinned. Sin hadn't yet entered the world. So in that sense, you could say that they were perfect in their walk with God. That's why they could walk with God in the cool of the day. That's why he had constant fellowship with his God. But when he sinned, that fellowship was broken. And since that day, all of mankind born into this world have been forced into a situation. We weren't this way because we wanted to be, but we were born into it. And that way that I'm speaking of is a nature of sinfulness. Inherited, if you will, from our parents. And our parents inherited from their parents. And they, throughout the ages, generation after generation. That's why the Bible calls us the sons of God. And those who are without faith are still sons of Adam. He is head over all who are unbelievers. In a very political sense, he is their head. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have him as our head, our authority. But the question still remains in many people's minds, why did he become one of us? Why is he like one of us still now? Why was he then? What was the real reason for that? Again, God had already planned that way long ago. In the beginning of time, It's recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, a passage you know, I believe, quite well. If you've been a believer for any length of time, if you've heard any of the Christmas stories, you've heard this passage quoted over and over and over again. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. 
And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from the time, from that time forward, even forevermore. He came. Isaiah says he was born. Unto us a child is born. But Isaiah says much more than that. Take note of the second phrase. Unto us a son is given. The Father gave his son for us to accomplish his perfect will, to do everything that he had ordained that must be done in order to save all mankind from their sins, to deliver. That's the purpose. And that's what we'll be looking at today. As I was considering these things, putting this message, if you will, together, I was mindful of a fact that over the course of these several Advent weeks, as we've come to this particular day, this Christmas season of Advent, Barbara had played on the piano a song. Many of you are familiar with it. It's one of my favorites. And no, it's not Santa Baby. It's not Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Oh, those are wonderful Christmas songs, aren't they? The song that I'm thinking of, that Barbara again did play, was far, far better than any of those Well, I won't say heathen, but that's what they are. Songs. Mary, did you know? The song was written by Mark Lowry back in 1984. He wrote it originally as the words to a play for children. But in 1991, apparently one of his friends got together with him, a composer, and knew of those words and suggested to Mark, why don't we put that to music? And they did. And it resulted in a song that has been so, so widely received throughout the world. One of the very best contemporary Christian pieces that I know of. And it over and over again asked the question, Mary, did you know? I want to use that as a basic outline for what I'm sharing today as we go through the entire Word of God from beginning to end, several verses of Scripture that we will be looking at, answering these questions that Mark put on the page for us all to ponder even still. He asked the question, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters It's a valid question. Was she fully aware, or at least partially aware? Did she have any understanding of the vastness of that simple statement, He will save our sons and daughters? Take a look with me at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 10.
Jesus is here speaking to his disciples. He's got many people around him. Some of them were children. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 18, Matthew's Gospel, these words, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. He equates these little children to little lost sheep. So he's come to save children. Turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 9 begins, again Jesus speaking. And Jesus said to him, he's speaking of a man who was a sinner. Zacchaeus, he had gotten to the place where he believed in Jesus Christ. And he invited Jesus into his home and made a confession of his sins and an offer to give back to them that he stole from fourfold. It's a great story in the middle of this wonderful gospel record. And it's here in verse 9 that we see the words of Jesus again. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Again, Jesus speaking, talking about the salvation of those that are lost. And this time, not children, but sons of Abraham. Descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, included in those that are to be saved, as well as children. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible is replete with all kinds of evidence for us to look at if we were to have the time to do so. But I want to offer one more passage of Scripture that tells us this truth. When he asked the question, Mary, did you know that your sons and daughters will be saved? Turn with me now to John chapter 12. John 12, verse 44. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's at the feast, the festival of lights, around this time of year. So what we know today is Hanukkah. And it tells us in verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's pretty all-inclusive. The world means all of mankind. He came to save all, not just a few, not just the children of the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people, but all people. The book of Hebrews tells us that 
It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation through Him. And Jesus Himself gives these promises that He has come to do so. So when Mark wrote those words, Mary, did you know that He has come to save our sons and daughters? The answer is, yes. She had it in the Word. She had it from her own son's lips. He did indeed come for that purpose. Then he asked another question. He asked, Mary, did you know this child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Well, what did he mean by that? Soon deliver. Well, deliverance implies imprisonment, does it not? It implies some kind of incarceration. And that's really a good picture, if you will, If there's anything good about sin, it's a good picture of what sin has done. Mankind has been indeed imprisoned by sin, held in bondage by this power that we ourselves cannot break. But he asks again the question, did you know, Mary, that your son that you just delivered will soon deliver you? It's a reflection on Isaiah chapter 61. If you can turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 61. These are the words of Isaiah that the Lord Himself read when He began His earthly ministry in His own hometown of Nazareth. He stood before the people there in His own hometown. And He opened the book, turned to chapter 61, if you will, The scroll was rolled to that place. And he read these words, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, Jesus knew That was his purpose, to come for that reason, to set the captives free. And he has done so throughout the ages since the beginning of the days of the church that began in Jerusalem so long ago. He has been setting captives free ever since. He did indeed fulfill that which was asked of Mary. Did you know this child that you delivered will soon deliver you? In that song again, Mary is asked the question, Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. We had just read Jesus' own words in John chapter 12, that He was indeed the image of the Father. The Word of God speaks very clearly about that fact. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, we see these very, very important and powerfully spoken words. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, and He has in these days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds who being the brightness of His glory 
and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had laid or had by himself purged your sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Take note of the fact that in the very beginning of verse 3, he says he is the express image of God's person. The implication is very, very clear. You've seen Jesus. You've seen the Father. That, in fact, is what he told Thomas in John 14. When Thomas said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus said, Thomas, have you been with me so long? Don't you know that you who have seen me have seen the Father? And then he went on to talk about the fact that those who have not seen him, that includes all of us, for surely none of us have actually seen face to face the risen Savior. Thomas was eyeball to eyeball when Jesus said to him, Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. It's not only there. You can turn with me, if you would, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 15 of the book of Colossians says this, Speaking again of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, don't get hung up by the phrase firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn doesn't necessarily, and in this case it does not, apply to the oldest son of a father. He is the only son of God. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about a preeminence, an authority over all creation. And that word firstborn is a, from the root word in Greek, arche, which means beginning. He is the source of all creation. It tells us in chapter 2 of the same great book of the Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus, in His body, manifests the glory of God in such a way as to identify Himself as a member of the Godhead. There's no question in anybody's mind who has studied the Word of God and takes the Word of God for what it truly does say. And for that reason, I submit to you that there are many cults who deny the deity of Christ. And they deny in spite of these words that are written in this wonderful book that we've just been looking at. But make it very clear in your mind. Jesus is the express image of the Father. The image of the invisible God. And in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. These are truths that cannot be denied. The chorus of this Mary Did You Know song includes detail about the things that he did on the earth. We're all familiar with that. It's a quote really from Isaiah chapter 35, beginning with verse 5. 
Isaiah 35, verse 5, talking about Jesus Christ when He was on the earth and what He would be doing while He is present with His people. Isaiah 35, 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. The miraculous things that Jesus did in the healing of the broken body, it's not really complete to say that that's all He did. Because He didn't just heal the broken body, He healed the wounded spirit of man. But again, the chorus asks the question, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will be the cause of making the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak the praises of the Lamb? Beautiful words reminding us that He has done so many wonderful things for the purpose of identifying Himself as the only one the one true Savior that was come into the world. He demonstrated by these miraculous things that He was indeed the one who was to be sent by God as a Savior, the Messiah. He goes on to ask in the song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? And again, I'd like to go back to the book of Colossians because it gives us there the answer to that question. Did you know He's Lord of all creation? Well, we saw a bit of that when it says in verse 15 of, verse, of chapter 1 that He is the firstborn over all creation. But then it goes on in verse 16 to say this, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. That is a complete answer to the question, who is Lord over all creation? The answer is simply, no doubt, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Creator. John, in his gospel, opens that gospel record with those very facts. Take a look at John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1, the very beginning of the gospel, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He was involved in all of the creation. He is Lord of all. He is Lord over all. He is the Creator. And He holds everything together still by the word of His power, the Bible tells us. What a wonderful God we have been serving, my friends. What a grand message that is presented to us in His entire word to us. This is what God has done. This is our God. This is the one that we serve. This is the one that came as a child, a baby in a manger, a lowly place, humbled Himself. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, Oh, did He ever 
Look at what he left. The glory that he had. It's unfathomable for us to understand what that means. But I do know this. That he emptied himself of all of that so that he could save you and save me. So that he could have fellowship with us. Simply because we have chosen to believe that which he has done is sufficient to allow us to enter into that relationship with him. That high priestly prayer in John 17 that Jesus prayed reminds me that it is His desire that we be in Him as He is in the Father and He is in us. We're connected. We are part of that union that exists because of faith in Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished on the cross. So yes, He is Lord of all creation. Continuing on in the song, he asked again, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? We saw a glimpse of that in Isaiah chapter 9. That his government upon his shoulders is a very, very certain government. It will be established. He'll be seated on David's throne. And He will judge the nations. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a great psalm by Solomon who understood that He was not the son that was promised to David. Oh, he was one of the sons that was part of that which God had promised David. He was the son who would replace David on the throne initially. But he wasn't the son, ultimately, that God had been speaking to David about. Because God had promised David a son who would sit on his throne forever. And Solomon and all of his descendants following him knew full well that that couldn't completely be applied to them because it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. They all knew that death was part of the existence in this life, that it ends with that final breath. And some of them were good kings. Most of them were not. Solomon had some good things that he did. Solomon messed up royally in many other ways. But Solomon wrote this psalm about a different one. And he says in verse 7 of Psalm 72, In his days the righteous shall flourish, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also over the seas, from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. He is indeed the one who is to rule the nations. The Bible tells us with a rod of iron, he will establish his kingdom and it will be an everlasting kingdom. And he will be known, as Isaiah said, as the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. 
He asked again the question in the song, Did you know, Mary, that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The judicial system under the Mosaic law is very much like our judicial system. But they had a lot of laws that were specific to their relationship with their God. And among those laws, God had stated to them that there must be sacrifices made in order for the people of God under that Mosaic covenant, under the law that Moses had given to his people, the only way they could approach God was by obedience to his commands. Remember at Mount Sinai, the Lord had spoken, the people heard his voice, and they were frightened. But God had spoken, and they told Moses, Whatever he tells you, Moses, we will do. They were entering into a covenant relationship with their God. And that covenant relationship was based upon the fact that Moses, a man, was their mediator between God and themselves. And that what they had just committed to was a complete obedience to the commandments of God that he was giving to Moses as their mediator that they would have to observe religiously day after day all the days of their lives. That law involved the sacrifice of innocent animals. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Right from the very beginning, when man had sinned, what did Adam and Eve do? Because they discovered they were flesh and not just spirit, they saw that they had bodies and they were embarrassed to be naked. And so they covered themselves, of all things, with fig leaves. Somebody say, ouch. That had to have hurt. It wasn't very comfortable clothing. But God had a different plan for them. It did not please God that they had done that. But in God's mercy and grace, He provided a different covering. It tells us very clearly that He sacrificed an animal. We're not told exactly which animal it was. But based on the rest of the Word of God, I think it's safe to assume He slaughtered a lamb. He shed blood for the first time. And it was the blood of one that was innocent. He didn't shed Adam's blood. He didn't shed Eve's blood. He shed the blood of an animal. It set the stage for all of the sacrifices that would follow. Because the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. But all of the sacrifices that were done by the Levitical priests throughout all of the time that they did those sacrifices on the altar of God, that blood that was shed only covered the sin. It made it so that they could enter into God's presence. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. That is something that needed to be done. But it was temporary, over and over and over again. And again, the high priest had to once a year go into the Holy of Holies where only he could enter and offer up the blood of the sacrifice for all the nation's sins, including his own. But now, Jesus became that 
sinless, perfect Lamb of God. So when we ask the question, did you know, Mary, that your baby boy is heaven's perfect Lamb? The answer is, perhaps she did not know, but we do. He is indeed that perfect Lamb. And because He was without sin, He had no blemish, He had no spot or wrinkle, He was perfect sacrifice. And the blood that He shed was shed once for all, not to just cover sins, not to just look, make it look so that the, that the sins aren't there. That was so for the Jews, but He went further than that. He didn't just cover the sins. He purged us of our sins. He removed us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. All of that done by His own blood having been shed on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. And John, the apostle? No. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, introduced Jesus as that perfect Lamb. He tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29, speaking of Jesus, it tells us there, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sins. That's in fulfillment of the Old Testament statements that are made in the Old Testament that speak of His taking our sins and putting them as far as Himself as the east is from the west, burying our sins in the depths of the sea, making our sins, though they be as scarlet, white as snow. All of that is fulfilled in this one act of Jesus Christ on the cross to become that substitutionary sacrifice for us, the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. He is the one, as John described Him, the Lamb of God that was needed for all sin to be purged once and for all. Finally, the last line in the song, Ask Mary, did you know, did you know, Mary, that your baby boy, this sleeping child you're holding, Mary, did you know he's a great I am? What a wonderful ending to this beautiful piece of music that is stated in those words. The great I am. Well, for those who would not know, that's a reference to the Almighty God. Again, going back to Moses. When Moses was called to go and deliver the people of Israel, he in that desert place, on that solitary mountain where he came face to face with the one true God that was represented in this burning bush that did not burn away, was not consumed. That place where he heard the voice of God say, Moses, take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And Moses responded and bowed down to that one who spoke. And he was told by that great voice in the bush, Jesus was that voice. God the Father was that voice. The Spirit was there. All three were present. And He was given this command. 
Go to my people. I've heard their crying out. He wanted to extend His grace and mercy to them. And He would send Moses as their deliverer. Go and speak to Pharaoh all the things that I command you. Moses was very reluctant to do that. Remember, Moses said, but I'm a man and I don't really have oratory skills like somebody else might have. I'm slow of speech, he had said. Finally, God convinced him, yes, Moses, you're the one that I've chosen. And then Moses finally asked the question, but if I go to them, they're going to ask me, who sent you? So who shall I say has sent me? And there we have the great words of Almighty God speak to Moses and to all of us. Tell them, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am. It's called a tetragrammaton. It means, I have always been. It means, I am all that you need. It means so much more than even those things. That's just limited in our ability to comprehend the full meaning of the words, I am. But that's what God has identified Himself as to Moses and to us. And when this song records for us these words, I am, and applies them to Jesus, what is He saying? He is saying simply that Jesus is God. But don't take Mark Lowry's word for it. Turn with me to John's Gospel again. John's Gospel, chapter 8. Hopefully you are all familiar with this great passage of Scripture. Because it's a very important one. When we consider the identity of this one that we serve. The power and the glory that belongs to Him alone. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 53. He's in a discussion with the Pharisees and the scribes. They want to kill him. They want to accuse him of some crime that they can bring against him so that the people will turn away from him. In that conversation, in verse 53, it says their question, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? He had been speaking of the fact that he was a child of Abraham. And they were not because they didn't believe what he had said. And so they said again, Are you greater than your father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourselves out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? They asked. And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that He is your God. Yet, you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I say, I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. And then the Jews said to him, Ha! You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Listen closely to the reply of Jesus to that question. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, truly, truly, 
Verily, verily, without doubt, absolutely, certainly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am deity. Now, if you have translation that says, I am he, the word he is not in the original text. It's not what Jesus placed upon his own lips. He wanted to make sure that they knew and we know that he is indeed the one who identified himself to Moses in that burning bush as the great I am. So my friends, listen. We've looked at the reasons why and there are many, many more. We could spend many times more than this short period of time that we've spent together on this very topic. Why did he become one like us? But there's a second question that I'm asking today that I think we all need to consider. And that question is simply, who is like him? He became one like unto us. But who is like him? Consider that. The answer simply is no one. No one ever could ever possibly be like him. He stands alone in that place of glory. And it's a glory that he will share with no other. But we are told, again, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to be like-minded. And in that like-mindedness, the implication is that we can pursue that which seems so impossible to be transformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's a promise to all of us. It's not going to happen instantly. It's called sanctification. It happens over time. It's a process. And He is working on each of us to bring us to that place where we will one day be able to stand in His presence and see Him as He has seen us. To see face to face the one true Son of God and to know Him as we have known or been known, to handle Him, to hear His voice, to see His glory. The Bible tells us that in that sanctification process, we will one day become glorified, no longer in these bodies of flesh, but these bodies of flesh which are called vile bodies by the, the Apostle Paul. Vile, stinky flesh, that's what we are. Tents that are breaking down, falling apart, corrupt, sinful flesh needs to be converted, changed, transformed into something different altogether. And the Bible tells us that these vile bodies will indeed be changed into glorified bodies like unto His glorified bodies. So there is a process that's involved here in all of us who have believed that we will be able to have the mind of Christ, that we are being transformed into His image, that we will be like Him in so very many truthful, powerful ways 
in that day that we are able then to present ourselves blameless before the living God through His grace and mercy because of what He has done on the cross. I want to be like Him, don't you? I'm not like Him now. I'm far from it and so are all of you. But that should be our goal in life. To be more and more like Him. Oh, I want to be like Him. I want to see Him. I want to know Him. I hope you do too. The Apostle Paul said in, again, Philippians chapter 3, that I desire to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Now, I'm not really keen on that last part of that statement. But if that's what God requires of me, then let it be, O Lord, because I know in the end, I'll be like You. And I'm not like You now, but I'm being made like You because Your Spirit is working in me and in all of you who believe. Again, He's transforming each of us day by day. The inner man is being renewed day by day, though the outer man is perishing. Listen, people of God. We have a Savior who came as a babe in a manger. He died on a cross. All of that which He had done during those years, only 33 or maybe 34 years in this condition so that you could spend eternity in that which He has prepared for all who believe. Mary, did you know? Ask yourself the same question. 